1967, there was a relationship that was unique that began in the NFL. So unique was that relationship that it became a popular field. Gail Sayers was one of the best running backs that the Bears have ever had. And he was black. And that wasn't really that unusual by 1967, but one of the other running backs was a man named Brian Piccolo. Brian Piccolo was white. And what made it unusual is that Gail Sayers and Brian Piccolo were roommates when the team traveled. It was the first time in the National Football League that a black player and a white player roomed together. And with the exception of Bears coach George Hallis, Gail Sayers had never had a real relationship with any white man. He admitted that. And Piccolo had never known a black man, not, not really known one. But from the time of 1967 to 1969, their relationship had deepened into one of the most memorable in all of sports. The movie Brian's Song depicts that. If you've not seen it, watch the old one. It's better. But in 1969, Brian Piccolo was diagnosed with cancer. And he fought to be able to play. But he spent more time that season in the hospital than he did on the field. And Sayers would often fly as soon as the games were over back home and be at the bedside of his friend. And they both knew that death was imminent, but they both refused to surrender. And in fact, Brian Piccolo died after an eight-month battle with cancer at the age of 26. But before his untimely death, they planned to sit together at the annual Professional Football Writers Banquet in New York City where Sayers was scheduled to receive the George S. Hallis Award for being the most courageous player in football. And while he and his wife had scheduled time and a table to sit with Brian Piccolo and his wife, at the time of the banquet, Brian Piccolo was so sick he could not attend. He was confined to a bed at home. And as Sayers, a Hall of Famer, despite only playing five seasons, as Sayers received that award, tears flowed that he could not stop. And he said, quote, You flatter me by giving me this award. But I tell you here and now that I accept it for Brian Piccolo. Brian Piccolo is the man of courage who should receive the George S. Hallis Award. I love Brian Piccolo. And I'd like you to love him. And tonight when you hit your knees, please ask God to love him too. You know what amazes me about that story? Is the statement from this great Hall of Fame football player, this skilled athlete, a man's man, who looks across the room of men and of all of this collection of people, and he's not afraid to say, I love Brian Piccolo. How often do we hear grown men say things like that? And especially in 1969, a, a black man to stand up about a white man and say, I love him. That wasn't a superficial relationship. 
It was deeper than this macho, tough guy image. That's not what this was about. These are two strong athletes that developed a loving relationship. There's a book written called The Friendless American Male that deals with the basic flaw in masculine relationships. I want you to listen to this quote and see if you think this is especially men. Men find it hard to accept that they need the relationship of other men. The simple request, let's have lunch together, is likely to be followed with the response, sure, what's up? The message is clear. The independent man doesn't need the company of another man. In fact, the image of the independent man is that he has few, if any, emotional needs. Therefore, men must manufacture non-emotional reasons for being together. Rarely do men plan a meeting together because they simply need to enjoy each other's company. Even when men are frequently together, their social interaction begins and remains at a superficial level. Just how long can conversations about politics and sports be nourishing to the human spirit? They do not know how to fellowship. I think that's pretty true. I think on a level that you put a bunch of us guys in the room together, and if you tell us we can't talk about sports or cars or politics or the weather, we don't know what to talk about. We kind of clam up. And I tell you what's funny is we're kind of weird. We stand aloof from one another as men, especially trying to prove how rugged we are. And inside, we're not all that rugged at all. We long for affection. We want relationships. We want deep love. But we just don't know how to do it. Not to mention that we often have the stigma of homosexuality today. We're fearful to say things like, I love Brian Piccolo. What are people going to think? And yet God has called us to love one another. I also ran across the commandments of masculinity. Listen to these. He shall not cry. He shall not display weakness. He shall not need affection or gentleness or warmth. He shall comfort but not desire comforting. He shall be needed but not need. He shall touch but not be touched. He shall be steel, not flesh. He shall stand alone. The problem with those commandments, those laws, is that people who obey them, men who buy into that mentality, will never experience real love because they'll never have unguarded close relationships. You know that's what the church needs. Not this phony baloney stuff. Real love. Real, genuine love. You know what the word real means, don't you? Some people kind of refer to me, if they know me well, as a Bible snob. My wife calls me that. And I tell you why that is. I want real leather on my Bible covers. I prefer calf skin or goat skin if I can get it. And I'll tell you why that is. They make this stuff called bonded leather. Ever had that? Let me let me tell you what bonded leather was called a hundred years ago. Cardboard. I don't want a cardboard cover. I want the real thing. Well, when it comes to love, I don't want cardboard love. I don't want 
bonded love. I don't want the phony stuff. I want the real love. I want the authentic love. When it comes to brotherly love, I want more than just, hey, it's good to see you at the building again. I want a relationship that extends beyond these walls and pews. I want a relationship that my brethren come up to me and they know my fears and they know my struggles and my temptations and my trials and my wants and my needs and my desires. I want them to know me so well that when we come together, we don't have to relearn everything we already know. So often we get together, we, it takes us ten minutes to remember who we are. That's not what God wants from us. Real, authentic love will keep us together. Let me ask you a question as we begin. Who do you love? Who do you love? Think about that. Who is it that you love? Gail Sayers in our introduction said, I love Brian Piccolo. You just fill in the blank. I love who? I love Edwin Crozier. I love Brenda Harrison. I love Mickey Barden and Angie Barden. I love who? Who is in that blank for you? Well, that's just through your mind as you think about that. And you say, well, hey, Terry, listen, you got to know something. I don't hate anybody. That's our immediate response. You ever notice that? I don't hate anybody. Hate is not the opposite of love. We often think it is. We talk about love. We immediately go to the antithesis. I don't hate, but that's not the opposite. The psychologist Rollo May said this. He said, hate is not the opposite of love. Apathy is. Think about that. The opposite of love is not caring. When we don't care about somebody, what we're really saying is, you're not important. You don't matter. I could care less about you. What's the big deal? It's, I, I, I don't care what's going on in your life. How loving is that? So reword the question, who are you indifferent toward? Who is it that you don't love? This kind of love that we need to seek is the kind of love that builds bridges and spans chasms and reaches and risks, uh, risk and demonstrates and expresses and shows interest. It's active, it's seeking, it's progressive, not reactive. Not, it's, 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 who is it you look across the aisle and you say, you know what, I just don't have any interest in getting, in getting to know that person. That's who you don't love. Who is it when you look around the room? And it's okay. You don't have to look at me. I'm not good to look at it anyway. Who is it when you look around the room? And you think to yourself, you know, I just, I've never cared enough to know anything about them. You know where everybody works? You know their history? You know what they've been through? You know their fears? I tell you, fears are kind of funny. The Bardens remind me of one fear. Their daughter was afraid of cows. Craziest phobia I've ever seen in my life. Nathan and I used to hide in the woods sometimes and moo at her. We did that because we loved her, didn't we, Nathan? Do you know people's fears? Do, do you know what they like? You see, that's the kind of stuff. Oh, that's not spiritual fellowship. Oh, it's the foundation. How can you get to know somebody's spiritual needs and wants and desires when you don't even know where they live? You don't even know what they do. You, you don't know anything about them. 
and do you love? Before we get into some qualities of real, authentic love, I want you to think about this. I want you to stay away from the fake stuff. Before we get to the good stuff, you've got to remove the debris. Move, remove the pitfalls. There are ways in which we try to show love that aren't real. They're not gen- genuine. Here, here's three of them. The first is the gusher. The gusher. You've seen that, the person who gives lots of nice verbiage with a sweet smile. All the superficial flattery. Now, let me make sure you understand. Unlike the gusher, real love always tells the truth. Real love would always say, man, Edwin, that's an ugly talk. They would not just gush to make you feel good. It tells the truth. It doesn't have to substitute emotional garbage in the ears of others as a substitute for caring. So don't, don't give in to being a gusher or, or allowing yourself to be gushed upon. Don't be a pressurizer either. That's the you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours mentality. The pressurizer says, I love you, to hear the words, I love you, in response. You know, parents do that sometimes, don't we? I have a two-year-old daughter. She's a couple months older than Trina. And she, uh, Trina talks a lot better than she does. Not as loud. <laughs> I don't know where she gets that from her mother, I guess. But she, she talks quite a bit, but she just learned to say, love you. And so every time I call home, and Jameson gets on the cell phone, and she's talking and jibber-jabbering. I have to say, I love you, Jameson. So she'll say, hopefully, love you, Daddy. You know, there comes a point, though, where we have to get out of that. Our love is not a, a manipulative tool. It's not a lever. It's not a way that we say it and we show it to get it in return. That's not how it works. It's not something you just do to get love back. Don't be that way. Don't be the ramrod either. Some people are just determined to push their love on you, whether you really want it or not. They're determined to travel down this one-way street of overly aggressive love. Authentic love is sensible, and it's, it's sensitive, and it's careful. It's not acting like some kind of savage carving his way through a jungle with a machete, just forcing his will and way upon you. I had a grandmother sometimes like that. Before you leave the house, she'd make you kiss her. You know, when you're 14, and she says, give me a kiss, you just want to go, no. I will kiss you when I want to. Don't be a ramrod. What is real love? You know who makes some of the best advertising slogans? Coca-Cola. Think about some of them. Coke is it. Catch the wave. Have a Coke and a smile. Always Coca-Cola. Who could forget? I'd like to give the world a Coke. But you know there's one reoccurring theme for Coke advertisement. Listen to these. 1911. Real satisfaction in every glass. 1944, it's the real thing. 1959, make it a real meal. 1970, it's the real thing. Came back twice. 1985, America's real choice. 1990, can't beat the real thing. 2005, Coca-Cola real. Over and over again, there's this word, real. 
Now, were those campaigns successful? Absolutely. In fact, you may remember there was a time where Coke really goofed up. They came out with this nasty stuff called New Coke. Why, that goes back to if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And afterwards, they came back with the, the slogan, can't beat the real thing with Coca-Cola Classic, because they learned their lesson. You have to have the authentic drink, the real Coke. Pepsi fakes. Coke is real. And I agree with that. All of us want genuine things in life, don't they? I mean, guys, if you really want to make it with your wife, you want to make her happy, you go to Walmart and buy her a cubic zirconium ring. What woman wants that? Who gets a fake diamond ring and brags about it? Oh, look at my fake ring that my husband got me. You know? Who wants to go onto eBay and buy a, a football autographed by Chris Johnson from the Titans that's fake? Who wants that? Who wants to have a wallet stuffed with $20 counterfeit bills? We, we want the real thing. We want the real, authentic article, no matter what it is. There was a period of time my sister was a vegetarian. You can dress up tofu, but it never becomes meat. Now, I've said all of that for you to understand that when it comes to love, what we need to do is quit buying into what the world says love is and what we think it is, and we need to turn to 1 Corinthians 13 and read what it is. And as we end our, our time together this week, we're not going to go back anymore to Israel. We've seen what they have done. But I want you to just read through Paul's letter with me and notice some things about love. Because if you don't have love, you have nothing. And it better be the real love. Start with me in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so to remove mountains, but have love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritating or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even if I've been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. I want you to consider four marks with me of real love. Let me begin by pointing out that love is essential, not optional. 
It's not like a car where you can go down and choose the options. And when it comes to religion and Christianity and spirituality and your fellowship and unity, say, ah, you know what? Faith and hope's okay, but love, nah, don't need that. It's essential. Look what Paul said in the first three verses. If I speak with the tongues of men and and tongues of men and angels, but have not love. You'll notice that phrase, have not love, three times in each verse, once in each verse. Verse 2, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but I don't, I don't, I don't have any love. Verse 3, if I give away all I've had, the will of my body be burned, but have not love. Now notice the quencher, notice the answer. After he says, have not love, read verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. Well, I don't know if you've ever heard a gong by itself, but it's not real attractive. In music, it's what we call an accent piece. Nobody's ever played the gong solo on purpose. Look at verse 2. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and my body up to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is not an option. It is a necessity. Without love, we are nothing. You take away love from our life, it's like driving a car without an engine, or a plane without wings, or a house without a foundation. It is designed and built for failure. We must have love. We are at ground zero without love. There is nothing there. I hear people complain about the church sometimes. And I hear them say, well, there's just not anything in it for me. I don't get anything out of it. You know, that place doesn't feel like a family to me. Could that be because they don't love? And instead of it being a beautiful orchestra, the Lord's body becomes a clanging gong. Could it be that instead of loving their brethren and able to have the fellowship and the Christian lifestyle with one another in reciprocating fashion of exhortation and edification, could it be because they do not love first, they are nothing? They have gained nothing. You you fail to connect to God's people and you never build bridges of love and you never see brotherly love as a necessity to your spiritual life, your spiritual life will fail. If it was possible for us to have all that we should have in our relationship with God, without the brethren, He would have allowed it to be so. But that's not possible. It's a necessity. Well, you know what? I just don't love some people. Well, you better figure out how. And I kind of get tired of hearing the old mantra of, I, well, I can love them, but I don't have to like them. As if it's some justification for me to carry around a filing cabinet full of all the wrongs that everybody's done to me. Let me tell you what. I'm sure glad that Jesus loved me and did so enough to throw away the file folder when I came to Him and not remember the things He didn't like about me. Because He had plenty. And if I'm going to love you like He loved me, then I have to like you. I have to find some reason to like you. 
you all know what this orange and white striped tie is about. I saved that for the last night of meetings, so they can't tell me not to show back up. I say that joking. You know, Alabama fans and Tennessee fans, they have to love each other. Oh, well, that's silly, Terrence. It's just sports. I'm going to tell you, sometimes I see my brethren fighting over stuff that's just silly. It's not an option. It's essential. Love is also a demonstration, not an inclination. What I mean by that is it requires movement. It has involvement. It has action. You have to do something. You notice the phraseology of 1 Corinthians 13. Love is. Love is not. Love does. Love does not. Love is something you do. Not something you just merely feel. It's something that you have to demonstrate. It's not apathetic. It's ready and willing. It's not indifferent or passive. It's aggressive and seeking. Well, he never talks to me. Then go talk to him. Well, they never have me over to their house. Then have him over to yours. Love does not wait for someone to start the conversation. It's not sterile and dull. It's action. It's demonstrative. It refuses to sit back and yawn itself through life and hitting the snooze button. It gets out of the recliner and it does something. In the 1920s in Massachusetts, there was a man walking on the pier. And he fell into the cold waters there beside the pier. And his friends and family heard his cries. And he was unable to swim or stay afloat in the frigid waters. And they didn't get to him. And he, he passed away. You know what was tragic about that? Was that a few feet away from where he fell off the pier, there sat a man in a chair, sunbathing, who refused to get up and to save the drowning man. He looked the other way and he refused to help. And the family was so distraught that that man had willfully sat by and allowed their family member to die. They sued him and they lost the case. The judge ruled that the man was not legally responsible to save a drowning man's life. I guess we could say that was the civil law equivalent of Cain's question. Am I my brother's keeper? I guess legally we have a right to turn a deaf ear and to ignore those who are struggling and to mind our own business and keep basking in the sunlight while others perish all around us. I don't know that we're legally obligated to respond to our brethren who are hurting and crying out for our help. But I would suggest to you that while being indifferent may not be illegal, it is immoral. And it is not God-like. And how we can stand around and ignore our brethren who need our love. Well, that reminds us that the opposite of love is not hatred, it's apathy. 
Could it be that sometimes we just don't care enough to get closer? Could it be that we just don't care enough about the brethren to try any harder? Oh, I know, I know, that seems harsh. I mean, after all, life is busy. I mean, you don't understand, preacher. We've got all these things to do. We've got football practice, and my daughter's got soccer, and, and I've got to be here, and I've got this community group, and we've got play day, and we've got this at school, and that at school, and PTA, and we've got all of these things. All of which says that I care more about those things than I do my brethren at times. I'm not trying to be harsh or critical. I just want to remind you, one day we're going to stand before God and give an account for the things we said. And I said, I failed to love my brethren, but I've maneuvered my son into the NFL. I don't know that that's going to save me. If I failed to connect to the brothers, brethren where I attend, my local family, but they've named a wing at the high school after me. I don't think that's going to save my soul. We don't need to be inclined to love the brethren. We need. Thirdly, I see from this text that love is a magnet that draws us together, not a wall that keeps us apart. You realize there are 15 expressions of love in verses 4 through 7. Look at those again. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. Love does not seek, it own, seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Love rejoices with truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never fails. Someone once said you could summarize all of those with the following five statements. Here they are. Number one, I accept you as you are. Number two, I believe you are valuable. Number three, I care when you hurt. Number four, I desire only what is best for you. Number one, I erase all offenses. A, B, C's of love. Did you get that? Accept, believe, care, desire, Grace. I don't know anybody could turn their backs on such statements. Those are statements, those things bring us together. They, they cause us to come together closer when we do that, when we look for the good in each other and we accept each other, we believe in each other. That's what God wants us to do. Love never fails. Do not ever forget that. I wonder sometimes if we believe that. I wonder if we really believe that love never fails and that mercy triumphs over judgment. I, it seems so quick to re react with harsh criticisms and quick judgments and 
lingering dislikes and even frequently we display public animosity and hatred to people and even to our own brethren. And we forget what it means to be loved in an unconditional way. And how hypocritical of that is, uh, how hypocritical are we in that? Think it for a moment. You are here because you know firsthand the experience of God's love and mercy. You had no hope in your life. You had nothing to look forward to because your actions and my actions, they separated us from God and there was nothing we can do about it. But He so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son that if we would believe in Him, we would not have to perish. We are here because of unconditional love that said, if you will just simply obey, I will restore you to what you are. I will restore you back to a state of innocence and walking with me again. Now, if I've experienced that kind of love, then who am I to be more separated from my brethren than connected? Now, let me make sure you understand, I'm not talking about cliques. I know that gets thrown around in churches sometimes, and i got to tell you, my view on that is, first of all, they're going to be cliques. That's just the reality of it. Teenagers are going to hang out together. And that's what the, we could call that a clique all day long we want to. But they're going to do that. And to expect them not to hang out together more than they do with senior citizens is just unreal. It's, it's not something you should, it's an unfair expectation. You know what we do when we start throwing around the accusation of cliques? We're using that as a justification not to love and not to be connected, to be divided, to build walls. Well, they don't want to be a part of me and I don't want to be a part of them. So this is going to be our group, that'll be their group. Brethren, that's not love. Love will keep us together, but we've got to come together first. We've got to let it be the magnet to accept everybody as they are, to believe the best of our brethren, to care about them, to desire what is best, to erase all of their offenses. Finally, I see from this chapter that love is a long-term investment, not a quick-return loan. We live in the day of immediate gratification, don't we? I, I want everything right now. Right now. There's nothing shallow about real love. There's nothing magical where you can pull out a wand and wave it over a congregation and make it happen. And there's nothing you can do if you invest real love. That doesn't mean you're going to get it immediately right back or that you're going to receive the rewards and benefits just like that. It takes time. Real love has authentic staying power. It's tough love. It refuses to look for ways of escape. It's tough love in the sense that it stays when times are tough, not that it's mean in the process. When there are problems, it doesn't run away and go somewhere else because you don't want to own up to it. No, real love, real connected love says, no, this is my family, and we'll stay together through thick or thin. Real love doesn't cop out because the waves are high and the wind is stormy. It never says, put up the white flag, we give up. You realize the world around us is quitting? 
Last week I had a man come and talk to me. And he sat down. And he's not even a member of our congregation, but he talked to me and he said, I just wanted you to know that after 33 years, I've decided that I'm going to move out and walk away from that. We talked for over an hour. And at the end of that hour, he said, it's just not worth it. i got to find peace for myself. And I don't think she loves me, and I don't think I love her. And this is just really the only way I can. world is quitting. They quit their marriages and run through the door of divorce. They quit their children and ask somebody else to raise them. They trample their co-workers to get ahead rather than build relationships. They quit on relationship building. You know, it's always easier to quit. You know, when your marriage is having trouble, it's easier to quit and to walk away and not do anything than it is to stick it out. You know, it's easier to destroy those around you to gain more power than it is to bring them with you. You realize it's easier to give up on helping the Lord's body be what it should be and to quit than it is to fight through the tough times and love one another. Every congregation will have tough times. Every single one. They will come for a variety of reasons. We can't quit. God said that the man who says he loves God but hates his brother is a liar. I tend to think sometimes we think that that only applies to real hatred. Walking up to a man and slapping him in the face or sinning against him. I have to wonder what God thinks when a church has problems and we just run away. I have to wonder what He thinks when when we've claimed and professed and confessed our love for the brethren and we've said, this is my church family. This is who I love. This is my spiritual blood. And at the first sign of trouble, we're gone. Did we really love them? the economy's bad. 
some of you guys may be financial gurus. They tell people my age, you don't invest at your age in the market for right now. Invest in it long term. Your love with your brothers is so long. But what if the church has always had problems? We've loved and loved and loved, and it's been one issue to another, to another, to another, and it just seems like no matter what we do, Satan just keeps attacking us and attacking us, and I'm just tired of it. Let me tell you something. If you don't receive the payoff until the day of judgment, you'll still receive the reward. But I would shudder to think about facing my God on the day of judgment And when it comes to the subject of loving my brethren, if my only defense was, well, I just couldn't take it anymore. Not to the God who sent His Son to die for them. You're investing for your future. It's easier to walk away when problems arise. The question is, will you quit? Or are you going to fight for those you love? I want you to consider this. Are you really? When I say this, don't look at the guy next to you. Are you really showing love for your brethren as you should? Only you can answer that question personally. But if I'm forced to make just a generic assessment, the reality is we can all likely improve. I think tonight we ought to be able to look around the room and say words similar to those of Gail Sayer. I love you. I want others to love you too. Tonight, as I lay down, I'm going to ask God to love you. After our short time together and the way you've encouraged me, I can tell you that I love you. And I want everybody else here to love you. And tonight, when I get home, before I lay down, I'll be praying that God loves you. And I'll be praying that you continue to love each other. And that by doing so, you can be connected. And you can be a conquering portion of the Lord's church here. My prayer is that God will help you to do that.